Is competition a good motivating force? Why are some people more competitive than others? Is being competitive a virtue or a vice? And can it be compatible with living a life of high ideals? Join us as we discuss these questions and others. I'm Rashad Bader, along with Dr. Kevin Majors, and this is The Golden Hour. Welcome to another episode of The Golden Hour. This is Rashad. I'm here with Dr. Kevin Majors. Kevin, great to see you again. Hey, Rashad. Great to have you back, too. Thanks so much. So, Kevin, my wife and I have been watching this documentary on Netflix. It's the Formula One documentary. I think it's called Drive to Survive. And I've been meaning to talk to you about it for some time now. The Formula One offers this really fun microcosm of sort of flow and high performance and it's just generally fun um it's expletive laden so if anyone wants to go watch it just be forewarned uh with with some of the language that's used but it's a fun documentary one of the things that's you know the the unifying thread in the plot is this tremendous competitive drive between the drivers between the team principals between the you know ceos so on and so forth and they use this competitive drive to achieve tremendous things. And so what I wanted to talk to you about and what I wanted to ask you is, is having a competitive drive a good motivator? Yeah, Rashad, that's a, that's a great question. I think competitive drive is often misunderstood as being a purely negative thing. As if being competitive is something that we have to continually repent of or noticing, you know, others performance, you know, people can think that just noticing how others are performing with, and then putting yourself in somehow in relation, like stacking yourself against that in some ways, see how do I line up as if that's something inherently bad. Uh, just last week, uh, there is uh, an experiment it was in mice, but it came out of mass general here at Harvard and they were able to locate this unique set of neurons in the anterior cingulate of the mice that is where their um, competitive drive is essentially located. So that when you could tell by the activity of these neurons how intensely a mouse would perform in a competitive game, you could say. There's a foraging game. Uh, You can tell how well they're going to perform in advance based on essentially where they were computing themselves to be within a pecking order. And, and so if they were surrounded by people lower on the pecking order than them, they would always out, you know, tend to outperform them. And you'd see it you know, all mediated by these neurons in the anterior cingulate, which they could even modulate in the experiment and turn them up higher, and then they would outperform people that were used to be higher than them. So it's a... I just want to, I just cite that one. It's really fascinating. It was just in nature last week. If you want to look it up, you know, about competition and competitive drive in mice. But the reason I liked it is that it just shows that in to some degree, being competitive is hardwired into us. It is part of the, at least the mammalian brain, you know, that there, these social comparisons necessarily take place. So just the fact that you have compared yourself to others is a natural phenomenon of the human brain. And there is really nothing that we can do about it. You know, 
but it's neither good nor bad. So the question is, what does it do to you then and to your performance? Like when you're surrounded by people who perform really well, you know, better than you, what does that then do to you? That's the interesting human thing that we can have some kind of freedom with regard to the system inside of us. But the system for competition is just inherent. It's natural. That's amazing. It, it goes back to this idea too, that performance is a lot of mindset because if they could sort of modulate this nerve bundle up or down, and then that would actually affect the performance of, of these sort of lab rats. That's, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is. And I, so no doubt people will be wondering, can we do that ourselves? Is there a way that you can <laughs> use transcranial magnetic stimulation to just get those neurons, you know, to, and they'll, they'll like put you in the hierarchy higher up in it? Sure. Uh, probably not. The human brain doesn't really, it resists being tinkered with in the wrong way. Uh, <laughs> but no doubt we can have internal strategies that harness the competitive drive. I think that that's it's just the idea of the drive. Isn't that like something that we see, especially in young people, is often missing? And you kind of wonder, like, how do you get young people, you know, especially in American society, young men, to have like have a drive for their academic work or for life goals? You know, and I think that that's a that's a gigantic question right now in our culture. What do we do with the underperforming, you know, young men who have like checked out? Well, we were talking about this sort of anterior cingulate nerve bundle, right? So maybe we could try to apply the optimal work neuroscience framework onto this. So when we talk about reframing, we talk about this top-down neuroscience. We talk about the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. And of course, we talk about the anterior cingulate cortex as part of that model as well. So let me, let me turn that question back around at you, Kevin. What does our model have to say about this? What's interesting is they actually did also try to see in the in the the nature study on on mice competition. Uh, did they did the um, state of the ventral medial prefrontal cortex uh, make a difference? And that's where in humans reframing takes place, and presumably in mice, some higher level decision in terms of like is this some uh, something to be approached or avoided takes place. Um, and it didn't actually in the mice make a difference. So, so this was independent. But you are going to have, no matter what, if it's a real competition, you are going to have your amygdala firing because it's going to, you're going to need, to some extent, your fight-or-flight response. And you're going to need the adrenaline that comes. And those aren't totally you know, synonymous. But you want high adrenaline because it's a great performance enhancer. Uh, and so... When we're facing something that is competitive, we get adrenaline as a result. So that's the drive. The drive, I think, is really adrenaline and maybe in some deeper degree, testosterone itself. Because uh, they, we know that the ultimate competition is uh, military warfare. And warfare causes men's testosterone levels to enormously spike. So men in war have this very, very high, they're very competitive, very high testosterone. Uh, maybe that's why the language is bad too. And so you, you kind of think of the form your your uh, your documentary. Maybe these things kind of go together, you know. Uh, but it's just interesting that that there is a there is a drive component that is real. And there are there are analogous things too with women. It's not exactly going to be the same as in men, 
But I think in, by and large, in general, um, you're going to see the same thing in women. Uh, the uh, how are uh, you know kind of neuroanatomy, you know, how we respond. It's not so much the difference between something being uh, you know deliberate or automatic, which is like a top-down difference in you know in our brains. Uh, it seems like it's going to be more about how much are is your effort totally invested in the task at hand. So it has much more to do with intensity, you know, which is what we think of with in general focus, being really intensely focused on one task. So I think that that's kind of what results from the, from the competitive drive is an intense focus on attaining a particular goal. But I think that then where the more interesting part comes in with humans is why are we doing it? You know, and are we doing it just as an end in itself, some performance goal? Or do we have some higher level of mastery that is a process goal that we're aiming for? So that's a, that's a kind of left brain, right brain distinction. You know, we use the left brain to obtain particular outcomes, but the right brain appreciates certain processes, ways of learning, growing, and practicing. And then your, your drive ends up serving that. So that's, I think that's for us the goal to humanize it is what's the reason for the competition? That's right. One of the things that I wanted to ask you while you were talking was, if the competitive drive focuses us, and it focuses us relationally to our competitors, can those competitors then serve as that sort of image of the noble that we talk about, the Kalan, the Aristotelian Kalan? I think that's a, that's a wonderful way of putting it, Rashad. I think that... You can think of your competition, if they're better than you, they're like placeholders for the Kalan, the, the image of the beautiful. You know? And so seeing someone else's, and there's studies on this, how do people respond when they are surrounded by people performing better than them? You know, and there, if you have a kind of Carol Dweck you know, positive learning mindset, you know, that's a growth mindset that says, bring it on. I want to, you know, like, this is exactly the kind of, I love this competition and I love seeing how good people are at it. Then you feel encouraged by people who are better than you because they're showing you how to do it and you wouldn't necessarily have known. And so they're saving you time in a way that they're saving you effort. So if you can be around someone who is just leagues beyond where you are, that could be seen as an enormous boost. Because, like, whoa, now I have someone to learn from. I mean, imagine you've been playing squash, you know, you know, in 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 a small town for years, and you know, and there's a very small pool of people, you know, to play against. You know, and then someone moves in from out of town, and they are just light years beyond you. And you might have been the you know the top of you know at the top of the uh, town's roster, but in fact, you were all more or less plateaued. Seeing someone so much better than you can kind of get you off the plateau again so that now you're back climbing a mountain seeing, and you have something and that person's performance is like the image of the noble, the Kalan, that then guides you to see how you, and you can make you know leaps and take leaps and bounds in your ability to play squash. I think that in general in people's lives, especially when people are in their like late 20s, early 30s, that the biggest danger is plateauing and getting used to the plateau where there's no more drive. They've kind of succeeded enough at work that they're not really interested or hungry 
to get better and better. But if you're surrounded by people who are extremely good, I don't think that happens as much. Well, let me ask you, if you're, do you need to have that person from out of town come in and dominate you and squash in order to rekindle the drive? Right. Let's say you are this person in their late 20s, early 30s that's listening to this podcast. Maybe they've gotten into a little bit of a plateau or a comfortable rut. What would you say to them? And they're, they're looking around and, and maybe they're just better than their other current competition, whether it's at work or squash court or what have you. How do they rekindle that drive? How do they tap into that competitive spirit? Yeah, so there needs to be some kind of way of stretching yourself. And competition is just a fundamental human way of, of structuring that stretch. So that, that when we have someone who is kind of that, that we could, is close enough proximity, you know, that we can actually learn from that person's performance in, a, in an experimental way, not just theoretical, but actually experience how they're doing things. And you get to internalize their way of being. I think that is by far the easiest. And that means looking for people in general in life who are better than you, but not just people better than you professionally or better than you athletically, but better than you spiritually too. You know, Because that's another way of stretching yourself. You need to be thinking of surrounding yourself with people that give you these patterns, people who actually live ideals. And not just being around people that you're kind of comfortable with at your current level of growth, including your moral growth. So apart from that, I think you can learn from role models that are in the past. And you can, you can look and see what are the people who have you know, been extremely talented and have, I don't mean just inherently talented, but they had honed their talents to, the, to some, new, some real pitch of perfection. Or maybe there is even ways where just by studying the principles of something, you could con- devise a way for yourself to practice. So say you're the squash player in a small town, you could still probably think of ways of drilling yourself so that you would try to be hitting the ball 25 times and it goes exactly back in this one little square, you know, and you just stay there and you're not moving. You just try to make sure it goes 25 times off the front wall and then right back into this little square. And so, so you could you could find ways just using principles, you know, of of getting better and better, but there has to be some way of stretching yourself. So I think you could find it as solo practice. You could find it. It's easier though, and that's this thing about finding people who are better than you. It saves time. I think that all of this happens much faster when you actually have a living example, you know, that you can interact with, and that's that's true with people in anything you want to learn in life. When it comes to, I'm not sure if this latest article spoke to it, but is the competitive drive domain specific? Because you had mentioned in your past set of comments, whether it's professional or athletic or even spiritual, um, would cultivating a competitive drive or enjoying some natural competition in one space naturally serve to motivate you in another? Well, there is a lot of literature that speaks to uh, how aiming for mastery differs than you know than aiming for performance. When people who are much better than you pr- compete against you, 
you know, that if you're performance oriented or outcome oriented, you know, then you could experience their exceeding you as something that is humiliating and that would harm your sense of self-esteem or self-worth. So you'd feel like somehow just bad about yourself. But if people are aiming for mastery in things and they want to get better, then they see the, the comparison, as I've been saying, as something really positive, as a shortcut to learning faster. But that tends to be very specific. The most general way that that that, that we have a, as a as a concept uh, of like, what if you did that in several different domains? What would you then be? What's the generalized thing that you're building? And that generalized quality is called self-efficacy. So that that means that you believe that you basically can get better at things with practice. So I think that that is the better alternative to self-esteem. You know, that self-esteem is fragile, you know, and it, you know, can be um, in some ways thwarted by being around people who are better than you, you know, whereas self-efficacy, uh, you know, is increased every time you get better at something. So I think it's really important for kids growing up that they get good at things, you know, and it might be just one or two things, but, you know, and, and that some of that getting good, better at things they experience it also in their own academic performance to learn how to get really good at something in school and then use that to generalize the self-efficacy. If they can get good at this, then they can get better at other things too. I remember for me, that was like growing up, one of my, one of my, I had a wonderful math teacher in ninth grade and she was very, very demanding, you know, and you know, I had, you know, I'd basically been a good student, but I hadn't really tried. And there's something about how demanding she was uh, that really clicked for me that, wait a second, this is like a game. And I could, if I really wanted to, I could practice these things in math until I got it perfect, you know, every time. And I did that. And I got it. I, and then my, my grades in math became perfect. Uh, the, but that was like the aha moment. Mrs. Trumbull was her name. She was awesome. Uh, you know, and I went back and told her years later that I have to owe my success to her because because that's after that, my grades just became always good, you know. And it wasn't hit or miss anymore because I felt like every class is a competition, not against the other people, but just against like the the, the test itself, and that you can learn the, like how to win at this game. Everything started to feel like a game that was winnable. I think that that was like for me how maybe not to be too autobiographical here, but you know, I think that's how I developed self-efficacy. Is I realized that there are these things that I could get better at if I really tried. And there are plenty of other things I just didn't invest time in getting good at, you know, that I would like to, you know, eventually, but I just haven't, uh, haven't done that yet. I think it totally changes your orientation towards challenge as well, right? We always talk about at Optimal Work how one of our goals is to fundamentally change the way that we relate to challenge and embrace challenge. It stops becoming, like, as you said earlier, that threat, that, that sort of, if I don't, succeed or win here, then it's, you know, a threat against my very nature. Instead, it becomes, you start becoming more curious as to how can I improve? How can I get better? And so that curiosity, I think also motivates yeah. us. And people who use, you know, their competitive, the people who excel them as role models, um, do tend to have, uh, you know, uh, if they, if they fail, 
they tend to see, find particular solutions that they're going to work on rather than just a general sense of discouragement setting in when they don't perform or they get, they, they somehow lose competition. Instead, they get really focused on what they want to improve in. And so there's something there too that's just very practical that if you are, it's like it revealed to you a set of muscles you hadn't yet worked on. And now you're excited because you, you discovered them and now you have a way of testing them and you're going to keep doing that now to get them better and better. And it's like learning, I don't know, it's like doing triceps curls. You know, this is a, it's, a, it's a weird kind of exercise and we're not used to exercising our triceps, you know, but then once you learn how to do it, oh, wow, there's a way of practicing this. So you're always then looking for learning, growth, and practice opportunities, which is what keeps us always reframing things then. So the challenges tend to feel doable. But that, that general sense that challenges are doable and masterable, that's self-efficacy. And I think that in optimal work, that's really kind of what we're teaching people you know, is this deeper approach. It's like a growth mindset is part of the same thing, you know, but actually loving competition. You know, we talked recently about loving conflict because of all the good that can come out of it. But this is actually a more purely good form where you love the competition because either it's going to, you know, give you a chance to keep your skills honed or it's going to show you a way of, of honing them even further. How would we then take what we discussed, the competitive drive, the desire for self-mastery, all of the great stuff that we discussed, how does that fit into our world of ideals? Are these things ideals or are they ideals accelerators? <laughs> That's a great idea. Yeah, it does seem like they, like so mastery itself is not an ideal. It's a description of a quality that every ideal has. So it's, but it doesn't yet have content to be an ideal that you can like, oh, I'm just going to imagine mastery in my mind. So, you know, I, I, now when it comes to winning in squash, you could imagine this, you know, mastery to some extent, but even then you're going to be, you can break that down into sub skills and it's really skills that you're talking about mastering. Ideals are all forms of mastery. So, so no matter what you could be, to be patient is definitely a form of self-mastery. To be temperate and sober and to be cheerful, all of those are ways of mastering ourselves. So how would you use competition when it comes to living ideals? This, you know, maybe another, another question, what does it add? And what are you competing against? I would say you're actually competing against the old man. You're competing against your own previous best but without trying to assess the level of that previous best. So you want to be more cheerful, more interested in others, more generous. And you would never ask the question, absolutely speaking, how generous am I? <laughs> like you, as if you could, because <laughs> that wouldn't be a generous question to ask, you know, and like somehow trying to quantify an ideal violates it. The ideal is something that is the, an end in some way in itself. It's not just like a means to some other end. It's that we somehow are, are competing against our old way of being. You know, and that's why we're constantly aiming to stretch ourselves in things. So otherwise, competition, if it's not about self-transcendence and meaning your own best you know, performance, transcending that, if it's not about that, it's going to be about self-satisfaction where you just get then some kind of ego boost 
from it. And I think that would be the real danger. You know, and I think that no matter how advanced a person is in any ideal, there's always the risk that they will use comparisons as a way of boosting their ego. So, and I think that it takes a continual practice, actually, you know, of of trying to refocus on on the stretch itself, you know, and and the, and the drive to do that, um, and having really high role models that far exceed where you are right now. You know, those kind of anchor us, I think, actually in the positive way of being. You know, rather than just comparing yourself to people that you know you can beat. You know, so having the high, you know, these role models that can outbeat you no matter what is extremely useful. So you don't make comparisons for the sake of self-satisfaction. Wonderful. Kevin, do you have any final parting words? Uh, I think that there is, and this is what we're talking about this, it becomes clear to me that isn't there something um, competitive that's in the nature of love itself? Like that when, you know, that when we love, you know, we want to actually give our best. So love leads us to compete with ourselves to give our very best, but also sees the love of the person that you value most, you know, as something always worth winning, not just being resting and possessing it, but always giving your best to win it more and more fully. So I think that there is this aspect of love that even humans, maybe it's all sublimated from where it is in mice, you know, but, uh, but it still is that uh, there there's a, there's a good sense of competition, you know, to win the race out of love. Well, I think that's the perfect note to end on. Thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you, Rashad. Great talking to you. We'll see you all next week. Well, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to check out OptumWork.com for a set of online tools to help you engage challenge in your life. See you next week.